and welcome back to It's Symbolic Something Something Niche Media Something Something. I'm Jacob Savage. I'm here. I'm Ben. Well then, I'm exhausted, so I don't have an introductory segue. You got anything for us, Ben? Yeah, how, how'd your fast go, Jacob? I'm a bad Jew, okay? Yeah, did I, I did not. Shameful. Look. That's okay. I feel like everyone has their own way to reflect on their past year, and they're all equally oh valid. And you know what's a very reflective piece of media? That's the best we're gonna get, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. I, I, I feel like that's probably... I, I don't know. I was planning that the whole time. <laughs> Just say the title, Mira. <laughs> We're talking about Ghost World. Mary, uh, you're our comics person, so I take it that you were already familiar with Ghost yeah, World? Yeah, um... I read the comic back in high school, I think. I don't even remember how I found it, really. I might have just been... I know I consciously wanted to get into comics in high school, so I would just sort of look through the comics section uh, at the bookstore, and I think I might have just come across it randomly, and then I saw the movie, and... I've not seen either in many years, so... Yeah, to be honest, it was the sort of thing that I would just see pop up occasionally on my radar, especially in yeah. more indie circles, but... Well, I guess that is testament to the sort of channels that I'm involved in, because I've never seen this before <laughs> in my life, so... Yeah, well, I don't know, personally, I, I read the comic in college, and... I did not see the movie until preparation for this episode, so. What occurred to me uh, rereading the comic was that Rebecca and Enid's relationship is basically you and me, Jacob, in high school, except instead of hanging out in, like, diners, it was the school cafeteria. <laughs> Who's who? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> That's one for you to think about for a little bit. Yeah. Anyway, should we get into the background? Sure. I don't actually know how Daniel Close's last name is pronounced. Um, I guess it's Close. I don't know how to read. Uh, uh, we're we're going to use Close. Yeah. For the time being, I guess. Yeah, that's how I usually say it. Um, Daniel, if so, you're listening, we apologize. <laughs> yeah. So, Daniel Close started doing comics in, like, the late 80s when he published 8-Ball, which is a comic book, like, anthology, I guess. All right. um, and that's where he published most of his stuff up until 2004, which I guess is when it ended. And the comic he did prior to Ghost World was called um, Like a Velvet Glove Cast in Iron. And that ran from 1989 to 1993. And it had this very, like, I haven't read it, but <laughs> I guess it follows a, it's more fantastical and, like, paranoid and nightmarish. Which I don't think you would think to be the case based off of the other work being called Ghost World. <laughs> yeah. And um, for being called Ghost World, it's a pretty... <laughs> exactly zero ghosts appear. Yeah. The ghosts of society, maybe. Hmm. The title comes from a line in um, the film Faster Pussycat Kill Kill. Oh. Uh, 
Is that in response to the name of the film, or are you familiar with the film? Do you think I don't know the film? You just like <laughs> the name? No, I, I know the film. It's pretty big amongst exploitation circles. Oh, well, I'll just take that as meaning that I'm on the right <laughs> path here. I mean, it, it's um... the sort of thing that you see brought up occasionally in more professional film circles as well. I feel like, if I recall correctly, I think Roger Ebert was a fan. Uh, I don't know. I, I don't know. I know he collaborated with the director on a later project, but who knows. So he learned after the end of, like, a Velvet Glove cast in Iron that a lot of people had a hard time keeping track of what was happening all the way to the end. That means it's deep. <laughs> and ostensibly the plot is about a man named Clay Loudermilk trying to track down his ex-wife, Barbara Allen, after seeing her in, like, a pornographic film, I guess, as, like, a dominatrix. I I'm sorry, I just got distracted by the fact that Clay Loudermilk is a very good name. <laughs> yeah, it is. That is. So... After this, um, Close decided to steer away from the complicated multi-character epic, and instead, uh, I'm quoting him directly here, <clears throat> reduce it all down to the simplest dramatic situation. Two characters in a limited, self-contained world, with each episode standing on its own. And that's very much the format of ghost world exactly it's very basic in a sense I, I don't know how to describe it without going too into detail yeah but... i feel like i would almost describe each chapter as vignettes oh definitely um... there's despite being focused on the same characters there's not really a sense of continuity they're just little episodes from yeah they aren't, like, connected, per se, in a way a lot of comic books typically are. It's just, like, little scenes of things that happen, and then it might carry from one scene to another. Like, it'll be just a slice of something, and then it ends, and the next is something different. Yeah, the overall um, tone is more thematic than overarching story. Yeah. I would say. The actual comic concerns the antics of two recent high school graduates, Enid Coleslaw and Rebecca Doppelmeyer, which, again, are very good names. Yeah. You have to give credit to Close for that. Yeah, Enid Coleslaw is an anagram of Close's name. As it turns out. What? Yeah. Holy shit. <laughs> uh, I don't know. Having a J in my name means that I never got to have any good anagrams. <laughs> that's a bummer. A J and a B? <laughs> and a V, for <laughs> fuck's sake. Linguistics hates me, I guess. But most of their time is spent sitting in diners and being snide <laughs> about yeah. the goings-on around them. Since they live in... I, I don't want to say... It's a suburb, but it's sort of that transitional bit between a suburb and a city. Yeah. According to the notes, it's a mix of Southern California and Chicago. Yeah. There are, like, a number of direct allusions to Chicago. For example, the Norman sidewalk. That was something that was actually there, but it's not anymore. Unfortunately. Ghost World brought it too much bad press, I guess. <laughs> There's some recurring aspects. A lot of the events of the comic come from the girls' fascination with the more oddball residents of the city that they come across. Like One repeated example is an older couple that they insist are Satanists. Yeah. Perhaps the most well-known bit of the comic is an instance where they find a connections ad and in turn call 
the guy pretending to be the woman he's looking for for a blind date and then they just wait in the same cafe so they can watch and laugh at him when he shows up and nobody's there for him see this is why it concerns me that you two said it sounds like you in high school (laughs) is this the sort of thing you did you think that i would talk on the phone to a complete stranger (laughs) okay that's extremely true (laughs) Yeah, I feel like, in response to your question, the fact is that Rebecca and Enid kind of exemplify the sort of outsider culture, in the sense, that emerged in the 90s, where they were very averse to the quote-unquote popular kids, even though there aren't really any in the story aside from the occasional appearance from former classmates. But they just spend a lot of time being wry observers to whatever's going on. Yeah. Eventually, a overarching plot starts where Enid's father talks her into taking the test for a scholarship at a nearby college. And it... well, It's not nearby, it's 2,000 miles away. Nearby is relative. <laughs> in the grand scheme of things! I mean, in America... <laughs> Maybe, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah. That's, this kind of starts the deterioration of Rebecca and Enid's friendship. Exactly. I think eventually the primary focus of the comic becomes this deterioration, where it becomes a bit clear that outside of their outsider status they don't really have too much in common given that enid is the sullen kind of artsy girl while rebecca is a bit more pretty and standard they're just very sarcastic together yeah that was the basis of a lot of my friendships (laughs) throughout my teen years but i don't know i don't want to get too into the contents of the comic because a lot of it comes up again in further adaptation but i feel like what struck me is as i said this sort of 90s outsider nature i've seen connections i don't think it actually has any official sort of influence but i have seen a lot of connections by fans to the emerging more sarcastic characters of the late 90s, early 2000s, particularly Daria. Yeah, I can see that. Very Generation X. Yeah, and Mm -hmm. intentionally so. I've read that Klaus' intent was to put in enough cultural references that it would feel like a product of its time. As he said, in the same manner that Catcher in the Rye did for the 50s. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know if it's I like... caught too much of that aside from the technology involved, but... <laughs> yeah, I do think it's a good choice, especially with the sort of vagueness, I I guess, of the setting, like, location-wise. The specificity of the time period gives it... It gives the setting a sort of richness. Yeah. And, like, grounds it a lot and i feel that if one thing is going to be vague then another needs to be very specific i guess in writing because when when you're too like vague trying to be anywhere usa it ends up relating to no one which is also sort of interesting because it's a very personal story to close not in the sense that it's a direct one-to-one allegory of his personal life but he has stated and it's a bit obvious upon realizing that her name is an anagram that (laughs) Enid represents Klaus in a way because he's stated that she is a way of working through a lot of his issues even though she's a teenage girl and he was in his 30s by the time he made this yeah Rebecca as well on another level and he said that their dynamics are kind of that of several friendships he's had yeah which um, makes sense in a way because 
feel like you can make some sort of I'm not going to go that deep, but you can make some sort of psychological analysis on these characters, given that as the comic goes on, Rebecca becomes more grounded in comparison to Enid. She gets a job, she gets a relationship, and is much more closer to adapting to what is considered normal society. Yeah. Another thing that I wanted to discuss about the comic is that I don't know if it's just his art style, but I did find that some of the stuff, a lot of these characters look intentionally ugly. Yeah. Yeah, specifically a lot of the townsfolk. Yeah, there's one minor instance where they talk about an old acquaintance who's gotten a tumor or something. Yeah, a, a oh, tumor yes. in her face. Yeah, and, and I don't know. I don't know if it's supposed to be like ugly reality or actually. Come to think of it, Class himself makes an appearance in the comic. Yeah, as a comic book artist that Enid is fond of. And that fondness is immediately shattered once she meets the actual guy. Yeah. And he portrays himself as very slovenly, very repulsive. Which fits in perfectly with this world, but... Yeah. I, I, I totally did not realize that that was himself inserting. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, 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 don't, I have opinions on that sort of thing, which we're going to get into. Oh, okay. Yeah. Something I wanted to bring up just as, like, because it's personal to me, before Enid even brings up, I think it was Melora or somebody's boyfriend calling her a dyke, like, even before I got to that point, I was like, Enid is a lesbian. Definitely. And, and it's that late, mid to late 90s culture where Everything is lesbian. Yeah, like, there's sort of a, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I definitely got that vibe as well. I'm just teasing. They sort of, um, I don't know what the word I'm looking for necessarily is, but. It does like... express attraction to men in the comic, though. Yeah, it's just like Enid is said to have impossibly high standards, and that is a very common experience among <laughs> lesbians, is just having impossibly high standards for men. You have more practical experience than I do on this, so... Yeah. <laughs> I'll take your word for it. And towards the end, Rebecca as well expresses that she sometimes wa wonders if she actually is a lesbian. Like, she herself, not Enid. And I feel like her, I hadn't considered it necessarily since Rebecca seemed more sincerely interested in men, but I feel like her experience is also one that I've heard about from other lesbians. I mean, that's fair. We've been speaking this whole time about fringe culture of the 1990s, and I'd say that there's a fairly big overlap with LGBT stories. It's like they aren't really happy about it. The There's some early 90s homophobia, I guess. Sort of. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Sort of typical of the era, but I do see them as both. Maybe Becky would be. I guess she might later come to see herself as bisexual. And Enid, definitely lesbian, but probably <laughs> wouldn't, probably at a point in her life where she hasn't really considered it seriously or, like, really realized it fully. I feel like, even for myself, it took a weirdly long time to really fully accept. It is arguable that it's just an attempt to fit in with the cultural norms. There is a fair amount of focus in one chapter given to the story of Enid losing her virginity. Oh, yeah. She just wanted to get it over with. She wasn't actually all that interested. Yeah, I don't know. Just the way that they treat it is... I don't know. For one, I guess it's more realistic than a lot of teen media I've seen. Yeah. But same time. 
So as should we get... Far... Oh, sorry. Yeah, as far as I can tell, it was a bit of a success. There was merchandise made, and, you know, mm-hmm. comics, or at least comics that weren't superhero comics, weren't necessarily all that big at the time. Yeah. So, naturally, it didn't necessarily hit this big, wide audience. It was compiled in after it ended in 1997 into a trade paperback, and it was moderately successful, but not especially, like, I guess impressively so. It wasn't considered a cultural touchstone. Yeah. Until, I guess, I mean, it had to have gotten some people's attention, because then there was a movie. Mm-hmm. High school is like the training wheels for the bicycle of real life. It is a time when young people can explore different fields of interest and hopefully learn from their experiences. In coming to terms with my own personal setback, I have been able to learn that I don't need to rely on drugs and alcohol. was written by Klaus in a collaboration with the director, Terry Zwigoff. Zwigoff was primarily known by this point for his documentaries, especially around his sort of misfit individuals. Probably his best-known film, at least at the time, was the 1994 work Crumb, about the cartoonist Robert Crumb. Who was recently booed at the Ignatz Awards. (laughs) <laughs> I'm I'm pretty uh, chipper about that. <laughs> he is a man who deserves to be booed. That's fair. To be honest, Crumb is a very good film, and I do hope to talk about it at some point. But yeah, our Crumb himself is terrible. <laughs> fair, but Ghost World was his first fiction film, or at least first fiction feature length. That's quite a departure yeah and not really you do get a lot of the same vibes in a sense i think so Hmm. the work stars thora birch who by this point was already a fairly big star for american beauty as enid and scarlett johansson who i believe this was her first major role as rebecca and and I did read that originally they want Christina Ritchie to play Enid, but by the time the project got off the ground, she was too old. Mm. Neither of you ha- have any idea who that is, do no, you? No, of course no, not. No, I, I, I do. I don't. She was Wednesday in the Addams Family movies. Okay, now I do. Thanks, Jacob. You can answer <laughs> that sooner. Surprisingly, this was a film that actually had... Teenagers playing teenagers. Thora Birch was 19. Scarlett Johansson was 16 at the time. Wow. Yeah, no, 16 and playing someone who's graduating high school would actually put her younger than the role she's playing, huh? Yeah. Wow. For some reason, I did not remember Scarlett Johansson in this role. Like, for some reason, I thought it was someone else. To be fair, in... This movie, as opposed to the comic, it feels like she is much less of a presence. Oh, yes. Very much so. You should check out the personals if you're a future husband and try to contact us. The film starts off pretty much the same way as the comic, with the added addition that Enid has been forced to take an art class over the summer. And... Most of the events in the comic actually happen within the first 20 minutes, half an hour. Yeah. Yeah, they get a lot of those beats out of the way real quick. Yeah. And a lot of them are, like, characters who are recurring in the comic who just show up once at the start of the film and then never again. Exactly. It is Enid and Rebecca. The little Jewish girl and her Aryan friend. You're late, asshole. Fine, and how are you? Sure, good day. You never pay me for that tape with the Indian dance But perhaps the biggest change is that the personal ad sequence has a lot more bearing on the overall story. 
a lot more. As yes, like it is the story as pretty in, much. Yeah, in this version, Enid takes sympathy on the man, who we later discovers in Seymour, played by Steve Buscemi. Played by Steve Buscemi, like holy fuck. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I'll be honest. I was not expecting him in this movie. Me neither. I was so. Uh, it's just always a pleasure to see him. You know. Yeah. Look at all this stuff. You are like the luckiest guy in the world. I would kill to have stuff like this. Please go ahead and kill me. Oh, come on. What are you talking about? I was looking at his filmography, and I was surprised that this was actually uh, his most awarded role, as far as I could tell. Wow. Yeah. I mean, we'll get into that, I'm sure. But Mm -hmm. I was curious why they made such a larger role out of this older man who's into collecting obscure records and questionable art. Until it (laughs) hit me that Terry Zwigov... Is an older man who enjoys collecting obscure records and questionable art. Ah. Hmm. Do you have any old Indian records? Indian records? Uh, yeah, you know, like old Indian 1960s rock and roll music. I may have one Hindu 78 in my collection from the 20s, but it's uh, it's not really for sale. I, I, I don't really collect foreign. He's sort of an amalgamation of two different characters. One of them was the aforementioned... uh, uh, Dateless guy. Yeah, they call him Bearded Windbreaker in the comic, and a guy called uh, Bob Skeets, who's an astrologer that Enid meets in the diner. And she leaves a prank call on his answering machine. And hurts his feelings. Oh my god. He just ordered a giant glass of milk. That's a vanilla milkshake. Yeah, it's interesting. These are not good people, but you don't necessarily hate them for it. Yeah. They're just Muir's favorite trope. Just teenage girls being shitheads. (laughs) Yep. I, I do have to admit that I'm always inclined to fall on the side of Buscemi, though. I'm sorry, this is going to be a recurring thing for me for the rest of this, this yeah, episode. Yeah, that, that's fine. We know what's stuck with you from this movie. <laughs> <laughs> Can you blame me? Ben, be nice to Buscemi. Mm-hmm. Ben. Like, that's that's his name. Yes. That's Ben's full name. I am. The, the Buscemi respecter has logged on. <laughs> gonna make that your official title now (laughs) (laughs) you think that's funny here is that funny i'll show you something funny within the movie enid grows obsessed in a sense with improving seymour's romantic life after they bond over old records I could honestly never really tell if her interest was supposed to be genuine. Like, I felt like I wavered back and forth on that throughout the film. It's a good the, question, actually. Yeah, but... like the in the point of reading a mm-hmm. sorry, in reading an interview with Klaus, he says that all of the things they take interest in are like genuine interest. Like, okay, um, in the comic at least, they're. I don't know. They're like very endeared, I guess. With yeah, sort of the, they've got a lot of. I keep on saying this of, word, but like fringe interests. Like they watch yeah. old TV and make fun of this, it. Yeah, yeah. This and, weird comedian, and then this uh, very fakey fifties diner. Yeah, that's. I mean, um, I love fifties diners. So. <laughs> me too. Uh, I just, yeah, I, I I couldn't really this... pinpoint the uh, the focus of her fascination throughout the entirety of the film. Really, there's a sort of humanity in the fakiness of it because it's not rather than being like a corporately stickler for accuracy. I guess like it's something and in, being interested in something that's made by 
people who have no idea what they're doing. Mm. I'll, I'll be honest, with all the talk about records, I expected them to pull out the shags at any moment oh, during God. this movie. <laughs> Wouldn't that have been great? Yeah, we need things to come full circle like that at some point. Yes, only then can we be free from our suffering. <laughs> Do you have any other records like that? There are no other records like that. Actually, I, I have the original 78 in my collection. It's, uh, it's one of maybe five known copies. Wow. Eventually, the woman that the personal ad Seymour Place was actually about contacts him. And Seymour and this woman, Dana, start a relationship at Enid's urging, but she becomes jealous over this. By this point, Rebecca's begun to split from Enid because Enid's spending all of her time with Seymour. And she also gets, like, a job and starts planning on moving into a new place and basically doing grown-up things yes, while I... Enid is taking her remedial art class and being obsessed with a weird guy. Yeah, and speaking of the art class, Enid brings in a old racist advertisement that she borrowed from Seymour, claiming that it's artwork made from found items or whatever that's intended to be a statement on racism yeah she says it she calls it uh found object <laughs> art which is a real thing but in a way she's sort of making fun of another classmate who had made found art pieces that were sort of clunky fem feminist statements <laughs> well i Guess I see the teacup as a symbol for womanhood, such as tea parties in the olden days. But instead of tea, I was trying to kind of confront people with this, like, um... This shocking image of repressed femininity. Right! Exactly. <laughs> yeah, the professor actually loves this work, puts it front and center at the end-of-course art show and offers Enid a scholarship to an arts college. So, over time, uh, Rebecca's friendship with Enid deteriorates. And at the show, which Enid does not attend, officials find her submission so offensive that they revoke the scholarship and take it all down. Yeah, it's very publicly removed from the show and ends up in the newspapers. As a result, Enid turns to Seymour and seduces him because I guess that's Thora Birch's entire career, seducing middle-aged men. You know, I bet there are tons of women who'd go out with you in a minute. I know, I could get you a date in like two seconds. Good luck. I mean it, you leave everything to me, I'm going to be your own personal dating service. Yeah, well, we should get back. By the end of the summer, you're going to be up to your neck in pussy. Jesus. To be fair, Steepy Scummy is a better choice than Kevin Spacey. Okay, yes. Well, okay, yeah. yes. Yes. 2018, <laughs> yes. Okay, yes. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> but the whole thing's kind of creepy in general in the movie, so. It, it, exactly. Yeah. And this actually causes Seymour to break up with his girlfriend. So Enid does not seem interested in continuing. Yeah. With Seymour. She realized, she sort of realizes after that that it was a mistake. And I guess it's, I feel like it seemed less weird to me as a high schooler watching this movie. And now in my 20s, I'm like, oh, honey, no. no. I'll, I'll be honest, that's how I felt about every work regarding age gaps in relationships. Like, when I first came across them in high yeah. school... Yeah, I didn't approve, but I didn't find it as big of a deal as I do now. Wait, <laughs> yeah. is the, I it's know like, the implication. It's like when you're a teen, you really cannot perceive of just how young you are. Mm -hmm. Though I do have to question if in the in this case is the is the honey Enid or is it Buscemi? <laughs> it's Enid. Oh, okay. <laughs> it could be both. Enid, I'm not mad at you. I know I'm just a dork. Seymour, you are not a dork. Yeah, sure I am. 
Enid essentially closes herself off from everyone, and in attempting to locate her, Seymour learns from Rebecca the circumstances under which they first came into contact, that being the prank phone call. He angrily confronts the guy that Enid has said she has a crush on, which results in Seymour ending up in the hospital. Enid shows up and makes amends with Seymour and then to some degree with Rebecca before boarding a bus that was seemingly out of service and running off. And that's where the movie ends. Except for the post credit scene, of course. Yes, the post credit scene <laughs> is just going to be kicking ass. Yeah, that's important. <laughs> Motherfuckers! You fuck with me? It's, yeah, it's more Reservoir Dogs. You scary <laughs> than... <laughs> Was Seymour Mr. Pink this entire time? That's one to chew on. <laughs> when observing the difference between the film and the comic, what really struck me was the sort of comparison between the author inserts. Because as we've discussed, Daniel Close put a lot of himself in Enid, who fucks everything up and leaves. Yeah. While That's Zwickau... the dream. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, Zwigoff clearly saw a lot more of himself in Seymour, who, while he doesn't necessarily have a happy ending, is a bit more together, gets some nice things throughout the story, and most tellingly gets seduced by a much younger woman. Well, it's a pretty far cry from the comic version of him who gets prank called and then curses the girls off and is never seen again. True. I mean, to be fair, I would appreciate Buscemi just as much. Yeah, well, absolutely. If... But he's gotta... <laughs> if that was the extent of his role. Yeah, but he's gotta get that paycheck, you know. I'd also enjoy it if he were an astrologer who sort of disappeared for several chapters and then reappeared at the end. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and gave Eden a reading. <laughs> yeah, wow, that character wasn't in the movie, huh? No. Well, he sort of became Seymour. Yeah, I guess so. Huh. They fused. Yeah, I don't know. The film only got a limited release. So it had a $7 million budget. It made $8.8 million in the box office. Hmm. But critics loved it. At least it made its budget back, at least. Yeah. <laughs> and like I said, it didn't get a wide release, but yeah. critics so loved the film. I think it may have shown up on a few best of 2001 lists. And I definitely see it ranked high on a lot of best comic book movies lists. And partially since... I don't know if this was the first, but it was definitely one of the first films to be based on a comic that wasn't a superhero. We could use more comic films like that now, huh? Yes. Uh... God... I've just never been a superhero person. No, I don't think any of us are. I can think of maybe three comic films off the top of my head that aren't superhero films. Mm -hmm. And the last one was released nearly ten years ago, so Mm -hmm. get on it, please. The film did get a nomination at the Academy Awards that year for Best Adapted Screenplay, although it lost to A Beautiful Mind because A Beautiful Mind won everything that year. And... Both Birch and Buscemi were nominated for Golden Globes. Buscemi actually won a lot of supporting actor awards for his role. Like, a lot. Just looking through at the Chicago Film Critics Association Award, the Independent Spirit Award, the National Society of Film Critics. It's a lot. It it was a role he was truly well-suited for. Yeah, and the film sort of plays an interesting 
meta narrative in retrospect, given that the two leads have clearly grown apart. Rebecca is comparatively much more mainstream than needed, given that Scarlett Johansson now makes ah. a ton of yeah. Speaking of superhero movies, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Hey, she doesn't just play superheroes; she also plays Japanese she also people. Plays yeah, Japanese women, yeah, and trans men. Oh yeah. Didn't she back out of that one? I think so. Okay, good. After significant backlash. <laughs> okay, good. Like, a very snotty remark about uh, cis men playing trans women mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. how nobody has a problem with that, even though everyone who... Everyone that every... has an opinion on LGBT issues. <laughs> everyone that, like, cares about trans women realizes that... That's bad. That's still bad. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm anyway, not even what sure. Are we talking about? Been... We've we were talking about Scarlett Johansson going very mainstream. Yes. And... Oh, yes. Yes. Yeah. Meanwhile, Thora Birch, after this, her career kind of went to a standstill, given that she did have a couple more hits, but her father, who was very controlling oversaw a lot of her later career and actually caused her to get kicked off of several projects jesus because they couldn't deal with her father i mean she did retire from acting briefly she is back now she's mostly done indie films right i completely forgot that thora birch was in hocus pocus oh my god i will say that Enid in this movie is another character that reminds me very much of Mir's sense of style. <laughs> yeah, there were some great outfits in this movie. Yeah, uh, just like Heather's was full of '80s looks, this is full of like early 2000s looks. What 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 sort of look does the dominatrix mask fall under? To be honest, the next movie I saw that. following a screening this was a wrestler film, <laughs> and. <laughs> Every time there was a shot of a guy with a mask on, I thought of the sequence where Enid talks a man, it's different in the comic and the film, into going with her into a sex shop where she has the time of her fucking life. Oh my god, look at all these creeps! Hey, hey, shh. Okay, can we go? <laughs> this place is a total riot! <gasps> Yeah. And I'll be honest, I I've been to the Museum of Sex in New York City, and uh, that is exactly what my experience in the gift shop was like. <laughs> I did not buy a dominatrix mask, however. Sure. Next time. I'll get one especially for you. Oh my god. Who who would actually have sex with this thing? <laughs> oh. Corporate slut. Sophisticated. <laughs> yeah, despite the issues that I had with the film, it is a good movie. Yeah, it's hard for me. I almost I wonder what my opinion would have been if I hadn't read the comic first, just because there, I feel like I couldn't help but compare it to that baseline in a lot of ways, you know. And so there, is, yeah. there is some disappointment that it was less about like the relationship between the two girls and just their interactions with the world, and more like a romance. But so yeah, it's, it's, I kind of wish I could judge it more on its own merits as well. And to be fair, I will always be judgy of works with younger women and older men yeah. like that. Yeah. yeah. And I guess at le- in this one, at least it's presented as wrong and kind of skeevy. Yeah. And like definitely having been like the wrong decision for both of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I just can't help but feel a bit more of an affinity to, you know, a story about, you know, these two young people experiencing life changing, you know, as time goes by and as they grow older. I exactly. didn't really get that much, that vibe quite as much from the film. But yeah. it definitely had a very, I felt like, yeah, that introspective vibe was a lot stronger in the comic. Yeah, and, I, I, I freaking love the comic, actually. Yeah. In retrospect. There's... A very, um, I guess, palpable sort of sense of the passage of time in the comic. Like, 
at the start. It's clearly still summer. At one point, Enid cuts all her hair off and it sort of slowly grows back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Towards the end. And like in the final chapter, you see the beginnings of fall. So it's like. It just feels like a lot of the interactions are so like disjointed and so many events occur in rapid sequence that it sort of makes it all feel like a blur between, you know, the start and the end when all that has occurred and all that time has passed. Like we said earlier, it's snapshots of snapshots. Yeah, exactly. And I think there's also just something about having these characters who are very, like, immature in a lot of senses, needing to confront all these uh, elements of adulthood. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the praise that I've seen heaped upon the comic is for its portrayal of adolescence. Yeah, definitely. It is interesting, since for a while the film was definitely more well-known than the comic, but over time, it sort of switched in a sense. Huh. As long-form graphic novels have become more mainstream. That is true. And And did it become more more accessible? I don't know what releases it's seen since then. There was a full compendium released in 2008, I believe. Okay, that is fairly recent. Yeah. Yeah, there's... It's, like, stayed in print, and it's also available in, like, a sort of collection of clothes work. Admittedly... Close and Zwigoff did actually collaborate on another work a few years later, the film Art School Confidential. Unfortunately, Steve Buscemi is not in this one. <laughs> That's okay. I don't need him in everything. It's always a welcome John Malkovich. surprise. But... Oh, huh. It's funny, though. Now that I think about it, you know what Zwigoff's most mainstream film probably is? Hmm. What's Bad that? Santa. Uh, Okay. <laughs> I keep on forgetting that he did that. I don't blame you. I'm not sure I want to remember that he did that. Yeah, exactly. I don't know. I'm willing to... I don't even know what I'm saying anymore. Maybe, they can, maybe you could think of a good way to like wrap up and, while integrating like Bad Santa somehow. <laughs> <laughs> Much like Bad Santa himself. <laughs> <laughs> is he called Bad Santa, or is, I would think he's just called Santa, no. wouldn't no. you think? <laughs> it, it's not Santa, literally. Oh, well, okay. <laughs> well, I'm glad we could have that sidebar. Anyways. We've spoken before about how works that are clearly dated can help or hinder a work in a way. And it's interesting, yeah. given that Ghost World is very 90s, both in content and in presentation, yet it actually feels kind of timeless in a sense. Yeah. I, I think it kind of feels timelessly nostalgic, almost. Yeah, there's it's a very nostalgic piece of work. Enid is very attached to a lot of things from the past, both her own and also just vintage sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. Also, just the fact that it's such a personal work, as I've been stating this whole time, it's relatable. It's something everyone goes through. Hell, I felt myself relating to Enid in some sense, and I'm graduated from college. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah, I remember I was kind of very much this person or these people in high school, and revisiting Ghost World in both forms, I'm still very much this person. (laughs) I'm I'm like a quieter Enid, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Does that sort out the question we had at the beginning does that mean that you're the enid and i'm the rebecca possibly (laughs) i can buy that because like i have a lot of old artworks and i have a working telephone from 1939 (laughs) that i use it does seem very on brand and you were the one that suggested we talk about archie and mahitabel so (laughs) yeah (laughs) (laughs) john pehchan well, in regards to looking back at things from the past, thank you for joining us on this particular look back. Thank you for listening to It's Symbolic. If you want to talk, you have a suggestion for something for us to cover, you want to challenge us to a duel whatever you can i'm very fragile don't challenge me i'm very strong okay if you want to challenge me or mirror to a duel 
Or yeah, suggest she's... that we duel each other. <laughs> <laughs> Either way, we are on Twitter at itsymbolicpc or on Gmail at itsymbolicpodcast at gmail.com. We also have an Instagram at It's Symbolic Podcast if you want to see all of those fantastic late 90s fashions that we referenced briefly. And before we go, we got added to Spotify recently. So Damn, we're so legit now, huh? Yeah, we're in the big time now. You're still not getting paid, but... <laughs> But we're someone the will get paid now. when you get all those nice Spotify ads between episodes. <laughs> there we go. Anyway, regardless of whether you're listening to us on Spotify, Podbean, iTunes, whatever, leave a rating and review. Tell your friends about the show. Tell your enemies about the show. Whatever. Just spread the word. Anyway, I'm Jacob. I'm here. I'm Ben. Join us next week. When we're going to review the alphabet. Hmm. I feel like there's a lot of excess there, don't you think? Like, right off the bat, that's my first thought. Excess. Like, oh, C well. and K, S and also C. Um, <laughs> you, you mostly just have like, a vendetta against this sound, don't you? This it's just... Arc. Well, it's just like, why do you have like so many different letters that all do the same thing? It's stupid. Like, was, was someone just fond of the notion of 26 characters in particular? Any of you know? I don't know. Hebrew has 26 characters, doesn't does it? Does it? I don't think it does. I, I think, well, there's like two different versions of the Hebrew alphabet, depending on if you do like the Ben, Ben, or count them as the same. Yeah, that's true. I, I think if you count them really separately, there's 26. Yeah, it wasn't really a joke this time. I'm forgetting yeah, you. Just some serious things to be forgetting you. Some people are okay, but mostly I just feel like poisoning everybody.